So tonight, the last night of our retreat, I thought I might talk about um, some of the values and directions of practice which take us in a somewhat different direction than the conventional values and goals of our culture. The Dharma has come to the West, and it's finding a home here, and in its working its way into the minds and hearts of many of us, um, it's causing a lot of questioning of conventional ways of seeing and being in the world. It's also offering us a, a potential that perhaps we hadn't recognized before, the potential to awaken. You know, if you uh, went down to the local gas station in Barrie or Petersham and you drove up in your car and you, you asked the person there, you said, um, could you direct me to the local saint? You'd probably get a few looks, you know. They'd probably look at you somewhat um, startled. It's, a, it's not a question that we ask here, but in India, you could wander into any small village or town and ask that question, could you direct me to the local saint? They would be thrilled to take you to the local saint because the local saint is as much a part of the culture and as much a a hero or heroine of the culture as our uh, superstars are here in America, our football heroes or our basketball stars. The archetype of awakening as a uh, revered path in life is, is not so present in our culture, but is highly present and visible in many parts of Asia, Many parts of India, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Nepal. This is seen as a a valid path to walk, to inquire deeply, to look into spiritual matters as a way of life. Sogyal Rinpoche, um, who was a Tibetan teacher, wrote this. He said, In this culture, there is no general information about the nature of mind. It is hardly ever written about by writers or intellectuals. Modern philosophers do not speak of it directly. The majority of scientists deny it could possibly be there at all. It plays no part in popular culture. No one sings about it. No one talks about it in plays. And it's not on TV. We are educated to believe that nothing is real beyond what we can perceive with our ordinary senses. We do sometimes have glimpses in our personal experience, but our culture gives us no context or encouragement for understanding them or nurturing them. So we tend to ignore such openings. This is perhaps the darkest and most disturbing aspect of modern civilization, its ignorance and repression of who we really are.
Tulku Ergen Rinpoche said, Self-existing wakefulness has been present in the mind stream of all sentient beings since primordial time. This is an understanding that is just like an obvious fact to many uh, Tibetan Buddhist practitioners. This self-existing wakefulness means it's inherent in everyone. It's not fabricated. It's not something we need to create or construct or make up. It is inherent in our, uh, in our nature as human beings, this potential to awaken. It is our birthright. So, I remember as a child in the Presbyterian Church, sitting with my parents in church services, going to Sunday school, hearing about the stories of the apostles who had these direct revelations from God. And I got pretty inspired as a kid, you know, I thought, gee, that sounds pretty cool. You know, a direct line to God, I'll take that. <laughs> so I remember sitting in church and really just, you know, opening myself and praying really sincerely that God speak to me. You know, I was ready. Well, nothing ever happened. So I began to question whether this, you know, was kind of a made-up deal or not. Nobody could really answer my questions uh, to my satisfaction. So I kind of lost interest. But then in the 10th grade, I was sent by my parents to a music and arts camp in New Hampshire. And at the camp that summer, um, they were doing a production of St. Joan. And by some karmic circumstances... (laughs) (laughs) I got cast as St. Joan. (laughs) And being a, you know, wanting to do a good job with the part and all and learning about St. Joan really for the first time, I, you know, I learned that she could talk to God. She had a direct line. And her way of accessing God was to spend a lot of time out in nature and listening to the church bells. And so I began to really get into the part, you know, and started talking to God a lot. And I felt, you know, like, wow, I'm on to something here. This has possibility. But, of course, her story is not the happiest of endings. (laughs) So evidently, you know, I kind of got the message that maybe it was dangerous to try to talk to God. And that maybe my search for God better go underground. (laughs) Which I would say that it did for a number of years. And instead of um, uh, seeking further in that direction, I I took up the path of, you know, becoming uh, a popular person. You know, being a cheerleader and trying to fit in with my, my peers and trying to look the part of what I imagined a young American uh, teenager was supposed to look. 
And so I got very involved, as all of us do in one way or another, on the path of becoming somebody, trying to find out who I was and who I was supposed to become. One of Lily Tomlin's characters says, I always wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) And I would say that's kind of my journey as well. You know how it is in our culture that we are given so many... um, suggestions by advertising, by the media, of who it is we are supposed to be. All in the name, of course, of selling us products to increase our beauty and our, our attractiveness and to make us appear more interesting and all that. But these images of somebodiness are just so pervasive in our culture, and we get you know, kind of interested in reading about the lives of these wealthy people who have these, you know, dramatic adventures in their lives and their ups and downs. And we, you know, the soap opera. It's pretty much the soap opera. But they influence our impression of perhaps, you know, a possibility of what our life is supposed to be about. And we get very mesmerized by these stories and appearances. One day I was sitting at my computer and uh, the screensaver at that time was one that just um, gave up quotes. These quotes would appear from all over on the screen. And one day a quote appeared from Mark Twain which said, clothes make the person Naked people have little or no influence on society. (laughs) And, you know, I'd never thought about it, but, you know, he's kind of right, you know. To be well-dressed in this culture is is highly valued. Whereas in India, I, I must admit, it's, you know, it's quite, the, a, quite a different story. Some of the, the highly value, valued saints are, are people who wander around in, you know, diapers and, and long loincloths, you know. They, they, they're very simply dressed. to look at our culture in a certain way. You know, um, we just are, the point I'm trying to make is that how absent this this uh, archetype, you could say, of awakening is in our media, in our culture. It's just nowhere to be found. Ramakrishna, the Indian saint, said, people weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or can't get money. But who sheds even one teardrop because they have not seen God. Seeing God in this way of speaking is is analogous to the journey of awakening, to realizing who and what we are. By coming on retreat, we are beginning to open ourselves to this universal human potential to awaken 
this capacity which we all have to live in accord with the understanding which comes from being awake. To live a story not of improving or perfecting or a fictitious self, but rather a story of awakening and becoming free. It is a kind of turning away from the conventional goals and values of worldly life. And the Buddha himself went in, on this journey. This happened to him. As a young prince, he had everything that worldly life could offer. Success, love, family, wealth, education, comfort and pleasure, all of these were his easily. And yet, instead, he was drawn to find a deeper truth. He was drawn by, by this potential he sensed inside of himself to radically question everything he had previously held to be his goal and purpose. I find that just amazing in a way. So he left the palace, he left his family, he left his home and his comfort and sought out spiritual teachers and teachings and he practiced very ardently for a number of years, and had quite a bit of success in the teachings that he was taught. He achieved the goals of many of the teachers that he studied with. He found a way of living a a simple and harmonious life. He found many truths, many understandings that he had sought, but still he felt he had not found the full awakening, that he was not yet satisfied, that he had found what he was looking for. And so he kept going. Another amazing kind of uh, event, that he kept going, that he kept questioning until, by his own determination and his own... um, effort, he found what he was looking for. So I want to touch on four areas of life which we may find ourselves questioning as we practice. And these are kind of arbitrary divisions. They're not really divisions, but they're a way of speaking. In worldly life, we put a lot of effort into, one, being in control, being on top of things. We put a lot of effort into performing well, into succeeding. We put a lot of effort into getting what we want and having a happy story. And we put a lot of effort into accumulating a lot of knowledge and information. A life dedicated to awakening really, whether we want it to or not, begins to question these directions, these goals. 
Often in worldly life, our well-being is dependent on our ability to be in control, to be in charge, to have it all together in the way that we want. And we can see how meditation really challenges this. It doesn't take more than 10 minutes of trying to focus on a simple thing like your breath to expose the fact that we are not in control in the way that we imagine. Isn't this true? You sit down for a little piece, a little breath, and whammo, you know, you're back in the second grade arguing with somebody on the playground. (laughs) We are not in control in the way that we imagine. Meditation also teaches us that this is actually okay. That the need to be in control in the way that we imagine is often based in anxiety and fear, and it can be a tremendous burden to operate from this. Living in the culture that we do, which holds this to be a great value, this, this need to be on top of things, I thought I'd share with you a, um, a, a little story about a, a software developer named Michael Saylor. Um, he, one of his lines is, people will die this year because they didn't buy my software. <laughs> and his software is is designed to deliver to a person just the right information, just in time to prevent the person from making a foolish or dangerous mistake. What is it? <clears throat> in the long term, Sailor Sailor's software would be a tiny device implanted in the ear that will whisper advice to a person as he needs it. (laughs) If a crime is taking place near this person, the voice in his ear will warn him. (laughs) If he's on the way to the hospital, the voice will inform him of the success rate of each of its doctors. Sailor imagines that his customer of the future will travel through a world in which guesswork and the inefficiencies and risk that accompany it has been eliminated. Sailor sees his service as insurance against unpleasant surprises. (laughs) What are you afraid of, he asks. Afraid of missing your plane? Afraid you'll be outside when there's a crime in your neighborhood? Even if you're not afraid of these things, the beauty is, with proper marketing, we can make you afraid. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? So that's taken, of course, to the extreme, to the very extreme. Removing all unexpected surprises and uncertainty from our lives is somewhat unrealistic. In meditation, we find another way to handle this. 
And we, we actually begin to sense that there is uh, another sense of what we need in order to be safe, in order to feel secure. The, po- the musician John Cage wrote a poem called Silence. He said in this, if you let it, it supports itself. You don't have to. Each something is a celebration of the nothing that supports it. When we remove the world from our shoulders, we notice it doesn't drop. Where is the responsibility? We begin to sense another way of being. Another way in which our well-being is uh, based in worldly life is it, it is based on our performance. How am I doing? Am I doing well? Am I failing? Am I ahead? Am I behind? How am I doing? The Buddha talked about the eight worldly concerns. Gain loss, praise blame, pleasure pain, and pride shame. And he commented how it is that in in worldly life, we want to hold on to success, to the pleasure, to the praise, and to feeling good about ourselves. Most of our effort is in that direction. That is the focus of most people's lives. And there's nothing wrong with it, but to be on a path of awakening is to focus instead on seeing and understanding the whole cycle and to cease to define ourselves by the traditional definitions of failure or success. When we truly begin to understand impermanence and selflessness, that there is also the understanding that there is no arriving somewhere at some ultimate destination called failure or success. In practice, rather, we begin to experience ourselves more as verbs rather than nouns. We are hearing, sensing, knowing, feeling, experiencing, rather than as winners or losers. We understand from our practice that no one moment is ever the defining moment of our lives. Every moment is part of an ongoing, unfolding, relentless process of change. That change is constant and inevitable. And as we practice, we even intimate at times how this process finally becomes an ally something to trust. Sheng Yen tells us some advice from long ago. Think of your practice as a fine silvery stream. Follow the stream. Have faith in its course. It will go its own way, meandering here, trickling there. It will find the grooves, the cracks, the crevices. Just follow it. 
Never let it out of your sight. It will take you. What a different way of living our lives. When we allow our experience and our lives to unfold in this way, we find we can actually relax. We can allow ourselves to explore, to be curious about what is happening, what is to happen. Knowing that through all the changes, we are held and nurtured by life itself. We are connected in a mysterious way to a much larger unfolding, and we are given what we need moment to moment. We can trust the changing river of our life. In our lives in the world, we also tend to look to the content of our story to tell us how we're doing, to tell us if we are okay. And of course, we all want to be in a story where we are successful, where we're loved or secure, self-determining, healthy. We don't want to be in a story where we are homeless or ill, alone, betrayed, disliked. And if we don't get what we want in life in this way, we feel often that we have failed. In practice, we come to see how tied we have our sense of self has become to all of this changing circumstances. We see that we have tended to look to the changing circumstances of our lives for our happiness, for our self-definition. And we begin to see how what an unreliable source of happiness this is. Changing circumstances, people, events, they change, they end, they no longer satisfy, they turn into their opposite at times. And so we begin to see how we will never find the completion and wholeness we seek in the external circumstances. to look for wholeness or happiness in these phenomena is a kind of setup for suffering. So in meditation, we come to know and begin to rest in that which is not dependent on all this changing phenomena. We come to rest in that which is not dependent on phenomena for our well-being, that which is present continuously before and after all phenomena, the ongoing, abiding, alive essence of our being. We discover this in meditation through all the ups and downs. We discover this capacity to be present for whatever arises. 
And it is only by going through all the ups and downs that we are able to discover this. So it is often the times when we feel most fearful or vulnerable or out of control that we are actually learning the most and stretching our capacity to be present without being overwhelmed. What helps, again, is remembering impermanence, which makes all of our ups and downs workable. Remembering that all that comes, all that comes are only visitors or teachers, momentary appearances here to help us open and to learn. This understanding can help us to relax in the midst of difficulty. Relax in the midst of difficulty. What a different concept that is from the usual one. And discovering that in that relaxation of mind and body and heart, there is space, there is gentleness, there is kindness, there is ease, there is clarity. The fourth area that I'd like to explore with you is that in worldly life we put a lot of energy into trying to know, to analyze, to figure out, to have an opinion, to have a belief, to have a ground of knowledge underneath us that feels secure. In meditation, I think... Those of you who are new by now can see we are not looking for a doctrine to believe in here, but rather a way of seeing and a way of being which empowers us to be more confident in our ability to know based on our direct experience, to see clearly for ourselves, and to let that inform how we live. The Buddha's invitation was, come see for yourself. Come see for yourself if this is true. And that same invitation is offered today. At first, that invitation sounds really inviting. And later on, (laughs) it may begin to appear somewhat shaky and quite insecure because it asks that we actually trust our actual experience. Not the experience that we think we should be having, but our actual experience. And that doesn't all always feel like enough or, th- or like what we need. And our actual experience is sometimes, I don't know. I don't know what is happening. I haven't a clue. Because meditation reveals things to us in a way that we're not used to. Usually we are looking for, we are used to finding answers in the mind. We are used to looking to a theory, a belief, an idea, a concept, a tradition to give us the answers. That is our usual way of learning. 
It is a way of learning that references the past, that looks to authority. But in meditation, there's actually a need to take another approach. It's a radical shift in our usual way of learning. It's a shift from the past to the present, from the mind to the heart, to make the present knowing of the heart the primary focus of one's attention and to learn from that. Different Buddhist traditions have different ways of evoking this kind of learning. In our practice of Vipassana, we encourage this deep silence and stillness as a way to access the present, as a way to go deeply into one's present experience. Another um, form of uh, uh, learning in this way are, is a kind of inquiry, is a kind of questioning asking questions which cannot be answered by the mind. In the Zen tradition, there's a whole um, tradition of koans, which are questions that the teacher asks you, which cannot be answered by the mind. In other traditions, there are other ways of using questioning in the Advaita Vedanta uh, tradition. Ramana Maharshi often used the question, who am I, as a teaching device? Taking that into your practice, who am I, as a question. Um, there's a little story that's somewhat humorous about the meeting of two traditions In the Korean Zen tradition, they often use the question, what is it? A kind of a silent inquiry, so you would would take it into your practice. What is it? What is it? And um, one time, some years ago, Kalu Rinpoche, a Tibetan lama, met uh, Sansanim, a Korean Zen master. They had never met before, and they had a meeting... um, Somebody arranged a meeting between them. They're two amazing teachers, one from the Korean tradition, one from the Tibetan tradition. Somebody thought they should meet, so they met. And uh, Sansanim's uh, first uh, response to meeting Kalu was to say, what is it? <laughs> and he was, he was holding an orange. <laughs> and he would say, what is it? Expecting, you know, Kalu the Great, realized master to give some amazing response, I suppose. Kalu looked at him kind of like confused and sort of like mystified. And he asked his translator, you know, what did he say? And he says, what is it? Again, what is it? And finally Kalu said (laughs) to the translator, he said, don't they have oranges in Korea? There was a time in my practice, it was actually very early on, I did a, 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 a Zen retreat with Sasaki Roshi and uh, had no idea what I was getting into. It was kind of a whim, you know, to go on this Zen 
retreat, a friend said, oh, let's do it. And I said, oh, sure, why not? I was really clueless. I really knew nothing of what I was getting into. But um, I remember this question uh, that I was asked, that, uh, that I, I met with Suzaki Roshi four times a day. The first meeting was at 3.30 in the morning. And then, you know, three more times during the day. I got to run into his room and sit down, and he said to me in his Japanese accent way, he said, um, uh, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? (laughs) And being really clueless, I think my first response was something like, I beg your pardon. So he rings the bell and out you go. (laughs) So you can see I, this is one of the reasons I came to Vipassana. But in later years of, you know, after some 20 years of practice, I've really come around now to value this, this uh, use of the question. And I feel that in many of our lives, we bump into our own koans. Our lives themselves begin to ask us questions. And I see a great value in allowing these questions to come into our practice, allowing questioning to come into our our, our inquiry in our spiritual lives. Um, and I see also that those who seem to go very far in practice are those who are willing to question, who are willing to question everything and trust what comes. There's a kind of um, diligence in questioning. There's a kind of... Um, you know, Manjusri with the sword of wisdom, just that, that, that determination to cut through to the truth that comes with this sort of, this, this, this intensity of questioning. One of my teachers um, said that the spark that leads to awakening is the courage to question everything. Nothing should be out of bounds If we're not willing to look at everything, if something is out of bounds, then in that area we are asleep. The hidden secret of awakening is the willingness to question. Now often, I think we get discouraged with our questioning because we don't know how to handle what comes. For example, we ask the question, if you are to ask the question, who am I? And you say that to yourself. Often what comes uh, is the truth of what comes is, I don't know. That may be the very first response to that question. But we don't trust it. We then, we think, we need another answer. We look to the mind. We look somewhere clever. We look somewhere to find a better answer instead of staying with our actual experience, which is, I don't know. 
I don't know. What if we were to stay with I don't know? To whatever question we may be asking ourselves that is important to us and yet we don't know. In the actual living, immediate experience of I don't know, what is present? What is present? We're very alive in that not knowing. It's not a, I, I give up, I'm, I'm hopeless, I'm a failure, I don't know, but there is a real aliveness in that. We are somewhat awake in that aliveness. So this not knowing actually has something in it of value. And I think that meditation increases our tolerance, if you will, for not knowing, increases our willingness to open and question everything, to make ourselves available to not knowing, to be willing to explore not knowing. I know a woman in California who had an awakening and realized that all her old beliefs about life and who she was were no longer true. And so she did a review of all of her old beliefs to see if she could find one that was true. And she couldn't find one. So now the core of her teaching, when she works with other people on their assumptions and beliefs and ideas about life is to simply ask the question, is it true? Is it true? It's a very simple yet quite powerful question if we're able to take it in and sit with it, to breathe with it, to not know the immediate answer, to let it do its work in us, on us. Who are you when you're not thinking yourself into existence? So these are some of the ways in which to live a life of awakening shifts our focus, shifts our priorities. From a life based on getting everything we want and having a story where nothing bad happens to us. From a life based on knowledge and opinions and certainty. From a life based on the need to be in control. From a life based on conventional notions of what it is to succeed or fail. We are shifting our attention to a life based instead on our innate capacity to be awake, to be present, to open our hearts, to see clearly, to know things as they are, free of our stories and ideas about them. I'd like to end with a poem that I first heard um, after 9-11, a poem by uh, Rashani. 
There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, and out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, which breaks the heart open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 4, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.